congregation, brothers and sisters. The book of James is also known as the book of imperatives. In other words, it is a book full of commands. James uses the imperative tense throughout. He does that also in this text. For that reason, some people do not like this letter of James. Seeing the kind of sinful people we are, that's understandable. But people do not like to be told what to do. They see James as someone who is somewhat legalistic. He comes with a heavy hand of the law. There is no gospel in this letter, they say. Even Luther thought so. However, is that really true? The fact is that there is lots of gospel in this letter, but you have to read it carefully and understand what the gospel actually is. For what is James's concern? Well, he is concerned about armchair theologians. He is concerned with those people who can wax eloquently about the contents of the scriptures and have a vast array of knowledge and and quote all kinds of theologians and confessions, but who don't put that knowledge into practice. Well, talk. James says you must also walk the talk. Your leather-bound Bible needs some shoe leather to go with it. And that's what I will preach to you about this afternoon. The theme is as follows. Put God's word into practice. And you must do that in the first place by humble acceptance. In the second place, careful listening. And thirdly, religiously serving. So put God's word into practice. Do that first of all by humble acceptance. There are people also amongst us, amongst us who are very concerned about the right Bible translations. They want to make sure that they have God's word in all its purity. Rightly so. The purity of God's word is important. But, as you know, there are many translations of the English Bible, and the Bible has been translated into some 670 languages. Translation from the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek into another language is a human effort. And so there's no such thing as a perfect translation. That is because we are imperfect, and so our speech and our understanding are imperfect, and therefore so is our language. But what God says to us in the Bible is clear, and it is important. In spite of the limitations of human language, he gives us a very clear message of salvation. He gives us clear promises, and he gives us clear rules to live by. 
For the rest, there are still lots of things that we don't understand. God and his creation are too great for that. But now, James is also concerned about Bible translations, but not so much about the words in the first place. No, about God's, about how God's word is translated into our hearts, into our lives. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2 and 3. He says there, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. God, the Holy Spirit, says Paul, took his own finger and reached right inside of you, and he engraved his words on your heart. Now, how does he do it? And when? Well, if you were brought up in a Christian home, as most of us were, and God does that actually from the cradle to the grave. Think about it. As soon as you and I were able to understand, our parents spoke God's word to us. They did that in many ways and in many contexts. They read to you from the Bible at mealtime and read you Bible stories. Don't they, boys and girls? But they do much more than that, don't they? Time and again, they remind you in one way or the other that you're a child of God. And how important that is. And how wonderful that is. How wonderful it is that even though you do wrong things, God forgives you if you get down on your knees and ask him. And he also told you what your responsibilities are as a member of God's household. And your parents also modeled their faith, at least they tried to do that to the best of their ability. And in this way, God uses your parents as instruments in his hands. He also uses others, teachers, elders, your minister. And he also uses your friends and your relatives and your siblings. And when they speak the truth of God's word to you, they're all instruments in God's hands to Put it into your heart. The Lord God writes his words in your and my heart throughout our whole lives. That's what happens in church, when you attend study societies, and when you read your Bible at mealtimes. Beautiful the way that James writes about the word. For to him, the word is alive and active. To him, and he wants to make sure that we understand that it's not just a dead letter. Passage just before the text in verse 18, God says that he has brought us forth or given us birth through his word of truth. Brought us forth, given us birth. So, what does God's word do? God's word makes us alive. This word also makes us bear fruit, fruits of thankfulness. 
And so God's word is very powerful and productive throughout our whole lives. Ultimately, the word is God himself. His words and actions are one and the same. He spoke, it says in Psalm 33, and it came to be. God uttered a word, and as soon as he did, he created. Imagine, through his words, he creates, but he also recreates. Through his word, he created you and me. And when he created us, he spoke the language of love. God's word is mighty, powerful. Important to understand James properly. For if you don't, then indeed you will see nothing but imperatives, commands. And then you also see God's word as nothing but a command, as a book of do's and don'ts. You have to do this, that, and that, and then you'll be a child of God. That's not the way it is. No, God's word, first of all, created you in love. Through his word, you're given life. And not just any life, but a beautiful and wonderful life. Eternal life, even. It was an act of love. In this passage, James also mentions the law. But to James, the law and the word of God are virtually one and the same. It's also the way it is in the rest of Scripture. Think about the ten words of the covenant, the ten commandments, which we read this morning. They begin by stating what God has done. The Lord begins by stating that he has delivered his people from the land of Egypt. He saved them from bondage, from slavery. And so even the law speaks the good news, speaks about the gospel of our redemption. And so does the rest of the Bible. God's word and God's laws are full of good news. In a moment we will see what that means. And in that wonderful book, he also shows us that he gives us the freedom to serve him. That's why James also says in verse 25 that God's perfect law gives freedom. He says, it is the law of liberty. Now, why is that? What does that mean? Well, brothers and sisters, listen carefully. If you do not try to do what God says to you in his word, you don't want to keep his laws. You don't want to keep his rules. Then you're not going to have any freedom. Without rules, your life will be chaotic. Can you imagine a world without laws? Let me illustrate that with the laws of the road, with the traffic laws. When you drive on a highway, then you will see that it's filled with lots of cars and trucks and buses and motorcycles, etc., but the highways are also filled with lots of rules, with lots of laws. Want to have freedom to drive down that highway, then you had better obey the laws. 
stop signs, the yield signs, the speed limits, signs, etc. What do you think would happen if people did not obey the laws of the road? Would you then be nervous? Wouldn't you be scared? Wouldn't it be chaos then? People would be smashing into each other, wouldn't they? You'd be scared, you'd be scared stiff to get in a, in a car, especially on the highway, when you're doing 100 kilometers an hour. For you know that without them, you will likely be harmed or perhaps even killed. And so all those road signs, those laws, they actually give you freedom of movement on the highway without fear. Well, that's also how the law of God functions. If you do whatever you want, well, you'll destroy yourself. You're going to come to a brick crash in your life. That's why God has put his laws into effect. They're there to protect you. They're there because God loves you. Because he does not want to see you and me come to harm. He wants us to be free. He does not want us to have a life full of chaos. And then he does not want us to hit a dead end at the end of our lives. Because some people, well, some of the Psalms speak about that too and elsewhere in Scripture too. It seems that in spite of the fact that they don't love God, well, their lives just seem to be all right. They're going to hit a dead end. And that's why God also plans his word in our heart so that we may know him intuitively, so that those laws are part of you. Verse 21, James speaks about that. He speaks about the implanted word. Whereas before he used a gynecological term saying that the word gave birth to you, now he uses an agrarian term. The word is like a seed that is planted in the soil. Now, do you know what happens when you plant a seed in the soil? Does it grow on its own without paying it any attention? No. Once you plant that seed, it still needs to be looked after. The seed needs to be watered. It needs to be fed. It has to have the right kind of nourishment. It has to have the right kind of fertilizer, the right kind of soil. And the seed may not be choked out either by the weeds that grow up around it. For those weeds will be in competition with the plant. And the plant also needs the right kind of sunshine, there are lots of ingredients that go into the good growing of the plant. It also has to have the right atmosphere. Same thing is true of God's Word. Like a plant within you. But if God's Word is to be firmly planted in you and to take root, then it must find fertile soil. It must have the right atmosphere. And you know what that soil is, don't you? The soil is your heart. The soil, the heart has to humbly ex accept that planted word. And the acceptance of God's words, brothers and sisters, 
of God's word is a life-changing event. For at that moment, you work it out within your own life, God's truth, God's compassion, and God's mercy, but also his demands. And that's a lifelong thing. When you accept God's word, then you fight against and you reject evil desires. And then you reject the world. And then you get rid of all filthiness and rampant wickedness, as, as, as it says in verse 21 of our text. And then, instead, you put on Christ. And such a life-changing event is not a one-time occurrence. No, that happens time and again. Why? Because you and I, we sin time and again. And that's why the word meekness is used here. You must humbly accept it. You accept God's word in meekness and because of your inherent weakness. But you have to understand what you're accepting, right? And the only way you can understand it is by carefully listening. We come to the second point. James says that everyone should be quick to hear. James writes these words within the context of the word of God. And so when he says that we must be quick to hear, to listen, he is referring first of all to God's word. He says, hear what it says. Listen to God's voice. Some people have the habit of reading large passages of the Bible. At meantime, study societies often also deal with large chapters in one sitting. Now, the reading and studying of God's Word is always a good thing. But how much of it do you retain or understand? Isn't it much better to read smaller portions? and to reflect on that. And then you can discuss it together. And if necessary, take a commentary to see how it has been interpreted throughout the ages by Christians before us. How they understand how it connects to the rest of the Bible to help us see the meaning of the passage. Brothers and sisters, God's word is so rich. It's full of content. Don't skim the service. Listen carefully to what God is telling you in a particular passage. Verse 23 and following, James says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, in those days, they did not have mirrors like we have today. Their mirrors were polished copper or brass or silver, and they were mounted horizontally. In other words, you had to look down to see what you look like. 
And those mirrors of those days were not as good as the mirrors we have today. They only give a poor reflection. And so you had to look very intently. Today, we have much better mirrors, and it's something that we do every day as well. I know I do. Every morning after we get up, we all look in the mirror as we brush our teeth and we comb our hair and adjust our clothes. We intently scrutinize our reflection. But then after that, we go about our daily business. We no longer think about what we look like. We forget about it. Well, that's what James has in mind here. He says, don't treat God's word like that. If you are a good listener to the word of God, then you just don't look at it once in a while, but then you look at it all the time. You're constantly busy with it. You listen carefully to what it says. And you allow God's word to show you what you look like as a human being. Not just once or twice a day, but the whole day long. Day in, day out. God's word is the mirror that you must look at. And the more you apply God's word in your life, the more that you will also see the beauty of God's law. Look at how the psalmist of 119, how he writes line upon line about the beauty of God's law. He is in love with it. The older you get and the more you see the beauty of God's law, the more you love God's law and the more you want to look in it and live in accordance with it. And James also says that we must be slow to speak. The Lord has given us two ears, but only one mouth. There's good reason for that. He wants you and me to use our ears a lot more than our mouth. And here again, he is first of all speaking about our relationship with God himself. When God speaks to you or to me, don't interrupt him. What do I mean? Well, in other words, don't come right away with your own opinion as to what he is saying to you. But that's what we're like. Me too, I'm not any different. We're prone right away to interpret scripture in accordance with our own likes and dislikes. We all have an agenda. And we want to apply God's word in the way that it suits us best. That's our natural tendency. And he says, don't do that. Listen to me. Listen to what I'm telling you. When your circumstances change for better or for worse, what's it all about in the scheme of things? Don't listen to your heart. Don't listen to your own voice in the first place. Listen to God and to what he has written in your heart. Think, what does God want from me? How does he want me to respond? How does he want me to live? And don't be angry when things don't go your way, but reflect. And that's why he adds the words that you must be slow. 
become angry. When do people become angry? Well, when they're rebuked. Or when someone or something gets in their way. Minister and elders and deacons encounter that too frequently in the way that they have to deal with the people in the church. They apply God's word to someone, and then that person becomes angry. He or she doesn't want to hear it. Why? Because it doesn't suit him. People don't like to be admonished. Yet we have to correct one another all the time. Husbands and wives have to do that, as do parents with their children, and sometimes children also have to put their parents in place. And they do that, or at least they should, because they want their loved ones to lead a godly life. For those who are quick to speak and slow to hear, James especially has in mind preachers, the office bearers. Ministers are called upon to speak. They have to speak from the pulpit. They also have to speak to the people in their homes. But before they speak, they had better listen carefully to the word of God. I, as minister, may not toot my own horn here from this pulpit. A minister may not come with his own opinions. He may not do that on the pulpit nor in the homes of the people. The preacher has to be a keen student of the Bible. He has to be a servant of the word. As a matter of fact, that's what the word minister means. It means servant. Servant of the word. And the preacher should not become angry either when he is not listened to. No, he must be gentle and he must be patient. Oh, the Lord requires a lot from us, from all of us, and especially from preachers. And yet, we're also such weak human beings. Good thing that God forgives also our shortcomings. But this is what we must aim for. For it is never about the preacher or about the elder, about the deacon. No, it's always about God's word. If people reject God's words, then they do not reject the messenger as such, but then they reject God, and then God's wrath will rest upon them. And that's why James adds that man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Such anger, man's anger, doesn't win anybody. It only turns them away. But God's Holy Spirit do the work. So James doesn't say that anger as such is wrong. That's why he also says in various passages in the scriptures that our anger, that in our anger we should not sin. You may be angry, but only if it reflects God's anger. But that can only become clear once you have really listened, not only to God's word, but also to the person who is sinning. Brothers and sisters, listening is one of the most difficult things for man to do. Certainly know that about myself, too. And that's clear already from what happened in paradise. God said to Adam and Eve that they should not eat of a certain tree. 
Did they listen? No. And that's where the trouble all started. When we do not listen to God's word, then we sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, will kill you. The famous evangelist once said, Sin will keep you from the Bible, or the Bible will keep you from sin. Let me state that once again. Sin will keep you from the Bible, or the Bible will keep you from sin. It's one or the other. When you don't listen, then you don't want God's word to be opened. And then you don't want to be rebuked. Then you want to keep on sinning. You want to follow your own agenda. It is only when God's word is open to you and you apply it in your life that sin will be done away with in your life. And so it's important to listen to God's word. It's also important to listen to other people. What exactly are they saying to you? And why are they saying it? Listen intently. When people rebuke you or me, especially our loved ones, then they usually have the best in mind for you. It's also true of the office bearers in church. See, the office bearers, they want to keep you from harm. They want to apply God's, God's law. They want to apply God's word in your life. They want to be instruments in God's hand to write it on your heart. And how wonderful it is when someone who has been going down the wrong road, when he listens to the rebuke and repents from his sin. That's a great joy not only for the office bearers, but it is a great joy for the whole church, especially to God. There's great joy when a sinner returns on the straight and narrow path to salvation. And it is a great joy when the Lord God uses his people and his office bearers in that. And there is rejoicing in heaven. For it says in the scriptures that God already hears us before we even utter a word. That's something, that's how he listens. We must listen to each other in the same way God listens to us. Of course, God is almighty. He is perfect. He is all-knowing. We cannot do what he can do. But he does want you and me to be his image bearers. And so, we must already listen to other people before they speak. In other words, you should try to put yourself in their place. Try to understand first where they're coming from. Don't come with your own agenda first. What are their hurts? Why might they be defensive? How can I reach this? And when you try... And when you truly listen to the person, then you can also understand what they're saying and why. Your loved one may say to you, for example, that you don't care about others, that you are selfish. That hurts, right? And we want right away to defend ourselves. That's our tendency. And 
tell them about, oh, look at the many ways in which I do care. But your reaction in that way, you don't get anywhere. Ask yourself, why are they saying it? Find out, ask questions. Why are you angry with me? What exactly have I done? Ask for examples. Try to understand why, where the other person is coming from. When people rebuke us, they often do so in anger and therefore often also overstate their case in order to make their point. You always do this or you never do that. And then you can either react to what they say or react to why they're angry. There's reasons for their exaggerations. You want to make a point. Sometimes a person may say one thing, but in his or her demeanor is saying something completely different. You may say, I'm not angry. However, the tone of your voice and your disposition shows that you are. Or you may say that you're not depressed or worried, whereas your actions and other indications are that you are depressed. The Lord listens to us even before we utter a word. That's in Psalm 5 and elsewhere. He studies our moods and all the other indicators. He takes a look at the whole picture and at the total situation. That's also how we must try to listen. Listening, as I said, is difficult. But if you don't listen carefully, then as James says in verse 22, you will deceive yourself. And if you listen carefully to God's word, then you realize that it's not just a bunch of rules and regulations and laws. But then you also understand what God wants from you. That he loves you. It's spiritually discerned, as Paul says elsewhere. You're in tune with him. Or you're listening carefully to him. You also then have the right kind of religion. That's the third point. James says in verse 26 that if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The word religion has to do with going through a ritual, a form, or a ceremony. There are many religions today, and they have many faithful and zealous followers. But you cannot call a religion Christian simply because it conforms to certain outward forms of ritual. In that sense, Christianity is not a religion. You and I are not Christians because we follow certain rules. You know why are you a Christian? Because of Christ. Chapter 3, James has a great deal to say about keeping a tight rein on your tongue. So it's not necessary to go into that now, except to say that you cannot, that if you cannot keep a tight rein on your tongue, that then you can do a lot of language. You say just what pops into your head, then you break down a lot of relationships, including your relationship with the Lord your God. And for that reason, James says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He uses only two things as examples. He emphasizes that believing and doing must grow together. If you call yourself a Christian and go to church every Sunday and do not care about your brother or sister in the Lord, well, then your faith is worthless. For then God's word is not written in your heart. God is a God of compassion and of understanding and one of service. And then you do not live God's word. Someone expressed this poetically. The gospel is written a chapter a day by deeds that you do and by words that you say. Men read what you say, whether faithless or true. So what is the gospel according to you? Let me ask you, how do your deeds show in the communion of saints? In what sense are you a messenger of the gospel of good news? How is God's word translated into your heart? Does it translate into a godly life? What is the gospel according to you and your way of life? Think about that. Amen.